Twisted Sisters Crime will contain mature content, graphic descriptions, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast may upset trauma survivors. Hello again. Welcome to episode 7 of Twisted Sisters Crime. We haven't introduced ourselves in a while, so hopefully you still remember that I'm Aubrey. And I'm Crystal. We are back stateside this week, heading over to one of our original 13 colonies, Delaware. Do you have our crime stats ready? Yeah, so in 2019, Delaware's crime rate was at 4.23, or 1 in every 237 people. They had 48 murders, 310 rapes, 790 robberies, and 2,967 assaults. Shall we get started with our small three county state today? We shall. Take it away, Crystal. Today, I have a story of Jenner. Jenner was born Jenner Cox. Are you kidding me? That's my maiden name. I know. They're always freaks. We got. Yeah. What is it? What's that guy's name? Powell. No. Wasn't their name Steve Cox? No, Susan Cox. Susan Cox was yeah. her maiden Su- okay, name. Okay, so I guess she's yep. the only one that's not a freak. But then, like, Alex Cox and that Lori yep. case I just covered. Like, yeah. sorry, guys. Apparently, my family from distant relatives are freaks. That's okay. You're not, because you're now a Redford, so it's okay. It's okay. (laughs) Marriage, marriage. Marriage fixed all my problems. Yes. (laughs) Now, she was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana. She graduated from Bishop Lewis High School, where she took advanced classes. Now, she met Mark in the summer of 1986. However, it wasn't until four years later that they ran into each other and started their relationship. Her and Mark married a few years later on October 23rd, 1993. He was 25 and she was 23. Her college education took place at Indiana University where she studied communications. So in 1996, she graduated with her BA in communications and theater arts. Now, just as any relationship, Mark and Jenner had to deal with low points in their relationship. He said arguments with his wife could be, quote, epic, and that she would win because, quote, she was always going to have the last word. So, Same. <laughs> right. Jordan gets mad at me because we're in a fight. Anybody, like, I mean, girls are just crazy That's, as it is. Well, like, we'll get in a fight, and he'll be like, okay, and I'm like, okay. He'll be like, stop. And I'm like, okay, I'll stop. And I'm like, no, seriously, stop. And I'm like, fine. He's like, let me have the last word. And I'm like, no. <laughs> he gets so mad. I just can't. We're, <laughs> we're women. We're women. Who cares? <laughs> so, also, money was a problem and concern, source of stress for this couple. But when the 2008 financial crisis struck, that's when everything had changed for them. November of 2011, the two moved to Greensville, South Carolina. They had both found new jobs in marketing. So with the new environment, they started to get their happiness back and exploring the state's scenic mountains and beaches. Just really made a turn for the better for them. But by 2017, their new life came to a standstill when Jenner lost her job and had a very hard time finding a new one. The couple then decided again to move and search for new adventures and opportunities elsewhere. Now Mark had met this woman, Meredith Chapman, through an email in a search for a new job for him. 
This new job was at Delaware State University as a creative director in its marketing department. Meredith would be his boss. Mm. He had concerns <laughs> that his boss would be 15 years younger than him, but after the interview, that soon faded. He sat right across from her and was in shock and awe by her energy, passion for the job, and for what she has accomplished by such a young age. So Mark ended up taking the job and moved to Delaware in November 2017. Little did he know it would also be the beginning of the end of his marriage with Jenner. <laughs> Jenner stayed behind in South Carolina to lease their home. In 45 days, Mark got to know Meredith very well. For weeks after he had met Meredith, the two had kissed and he stated, quote, while the energy was there, he immediately felt awful, end quote. He soon realized he couldn't give up on the feelings he was developing for Meredith. She had also told him that she was nine years into an unhappy marriage. Before Jenner had even moved to Delaware, Mark and Meredith have already expressed their love for each other. Mark said, quote, it felt right and it was a very powerful feeling. It was 45 days. 45 days. Like, some people have, like, come back from their mission and have fallen in love right away and gotten married, you know? So You mean that's the Utah culture? <laughs> that, yes. Jenner moved December 2017 to Delaware with her husband. She could also sense the distance and asked him about suspicions of another woman. Jenner finally asked Mark, quote, what is up with you? It's Meredith, isn't it? End quote. So she had to have known at this time when she wasn't there in Delaware that he was seeing this Meredith girl. And she like called him out like bluntly, like it's Women this girl. always know. Always. It's insane. Always. So we're nearing February 14th in 2018. Jenner had finally had the confirmation that she was looking for. Mark and Jenner had agreed to go to marriage counseling, but the day of their second session, Mark had went to go put on his jacket and felt something in his pocket lining. He had just assumed that it was an anti-theft system. That was until he cut it open and discovered it was actually a recording device which was flashing at him and recording him at that very moment. Yes, Jenner! So, right? Girl! <laughs> I don't think that I've stated it, but it, it is in an article that I read that she, every night when he was in bed, would take out the recording device and, like... So in a new one. It was Take a full-time job in. for her. It really was. Oh my gosh. So from that moment on, the his relationship with Jenner would fall apart at a very accelerated rate now. Mark had told Jenner that he was filing for divorce in May, and that was following Delaware's residency requirements. Now, I didn't look up what their requirements were, but I do know states that have these kind of requirements that you have to be married for so long before you can file for divorce. So hmm. it's kind of interesting. Meanwhile, Meredith and her husband were also going through a divorce. Now we get to the night of April 23rd, 2018. Mark and Jenner were supposed to meet for dinner to discuss divorce agreements, 
but in a series of text messages, Janair told her husband, who was already at the restaurant, that she was running late before she had sent another one telling him just to go home because she wasn't going to make it. Next, she sent him a picture of the trash can with a condom in the middle, which made him believe that she was sifting through Meredith's trash can outside of her home. Oh my gosh. Then finally, he received more text messages. <laughs> One quote, you ruined my life. He said the next two read, quote, I hope you never find happiness, and quote, by Mark. Oof. When his attempts to reach Meredith by text went unanswered, Mark said he rushed to her home, expecting to find a confrontation between his wife and Meredith. But when he arrived, he found Meredith face down on her kitchen floor with a pool of blood forming around her head. Nearby, he found his wife's body also laying on the floor. It was worse. It was <laughs> worse. What he it was. He quotes, it took five seconds and I screamed an obscenity and ran to her. That he's saying his wife. Okay. I was like, which her? Yes. He's saying to his <laughs> wife, he quotes, I just said, baby, oh baby, what have you done? Mark seemed to be hyperventilating when the police got there and was put into the back of an ambulance before he was brought to the police station as a suspect of the crime because he did call 911 the husband and he's the <laughs> husband and the boyfriend to these two so they did have to question him just to make sure his story checked out but after questioning him and finding the gun used in the two deaths underneath Jenner's body the police determined that she had broken into Meredith's home before murdering her and then killing herself. In the ensuing weeks, the intricate plan that Jenner conceived to spy on her husband and Meredith and eventually kill her all came to light. After her husband admitted to the affair just after Valentine's Day, he said Jenner opened up a secret bank account with credit cards and she used the credit cards to purchase an auto surveillance equipment, as well as lock picking kits, computer hacking software, and DNA testing kits for his clothes. Girl. Right? She literally planned this all out. Like, <laughs> not saying like, I envy her, but holy. She knows. She thought of everything <laughs> to do. Everything. She was like, you know what? I'm going to ruin, ruin him. He'd even said that she had bought a sophisticated GPS tracking system and attached them to both Mark and Meredith's cars. Oh, girl. He quotes, I think that there were over 400 images of private conversations that Meredith and I had via text and via Snapchat. And she would actually, in the middle of the night, get access to my phone. <laughs> Mark did say that his best guess as to how she gained access was when he was sleeping on the couch, she'd put his thumb onto the thumb reader of his phone. Janair had bought the gun that she would use in the murder-suicide on March 20th, 2018, five weeks before she committed the crime. Mark also said that her credit card statements showed that she had been practicing shooting the gun three times at the firing range. He said that the audio recording device he found in his pocket wasn't the only one his wife used either. He said she had planted multiple devices in his clothes and he found files containing hundreds of hours of audio that his wife had recorded 
even transcribing the audio into notebooks. You know, this girl, like, with all this work she put into it, I'm surprised she didn't try to frame him. Seriously, or kill him, too. Like, he also said that on the night his wife killed Meredith and herself, she had emailed a letter to family members of her family explaining her motive to a very chilling degree. So, she must not have been happy enough to want to live without Mark, I guess. She also started a letter weeks before and she had dated her entries. It's as simple as, yes, this is payback for what you've done to me. It's just like, that's as simple as it gets. She really just wanted Mark to be unhappy. So I would just think she killed herself and Meredith. Just, just a big F you. Just like a big F you. Yeah. Oh, girl. <laughs> Dr. Robbie Ludwig, a psychotherapist who has studied homicide within marriages, and he had read Jenner's letters, suggested that Jenner may have been pushed to kill Meredith and herself because losing the love of her life was something she could not tolerate. So kind of like what I already said. Mm -hmm. She just didn't want to live without him. And so she wanted to die couldn't, too. Couldn't live with him, but couldn't live without him. Right. More than a year after the murder-suicide, Mark said that he wishes he had handled the breakup with his wife differently. All we know now is Mark is living in California. After about two and a half years, Mark refused to talk to people about what had happened. Now he's 52 years old and is ready to share his story. He has a book that's called Imparable, Three Lives, Two Deaths. So. Mm -hmm kind of interesting that he kind of wrote this book as his perspective of being a man who cheated on his wife. I want to read it. <laughs> I kind of do too. Maybe it's just for all those dudes out there that are cheating on their husband. What? <laughs> are cheating on their wives? Hey, they could be cheating I on their husband. That's true. That's true. To maybe just handle situations a little bit differently than what to, he had. To maybe not cheat and just, you know, get yeah. a divorce and then hook up with someone else. So I found a woman named Martha Patty Cannon, who has the title of America's first female serial killer and also is known as the wickedest woman in America. So she went by Patty and she was thought to have been born in the 1760s-ish because there wasn't a lot of, you know, records back then, so... Don't really know for sure. Um, during the 1800s, she operated in Delaware and Maryland, and she kidnapped free African Americans and sold them back into the South. In 1808, Congress did make this illegal to import slaves from Africa, and so it made the market for slaves at the time upwards for $1,000 for one healthy person. So she worked with her husband, Jesse Johnson, and her two sons-in-laws, Joe Johnson and Ebenezer Johnson. So supposedly they tricked many of their victims by pretending to be part of the Underground Railroad. Patty and her gang were known throughout the eastern shore of Maryland as notorious slave catchers, and Patty was even rumored to have murders under her belt. Patty set the gang's home at a cross-section of three counties, Sussex of Delaware and then Caroline and Dorchester counties in Maryland. This allowed them to elude sheriffs whenever they got too suspicious because that's what all serial killers did, you know, just 
pop jurisdictions. <laughs> so there is evidence that is proving that the Cannon Johnson gang did in fact exist. Few African Americans were able to escape and returned back to the North, giving testimony to Mayor Joseph Watson from Philadelphia. An abolitionist newspaper at the time called the African Observer printed their stories. One of these stories is from a man named Peter Hooks, who talks about being on a boat with other men and being taken to Joe Johnson's house. He says that Joe told the kidnapped African Americans, quote, Now boys, be still. Make no noise or I'll cut your throats. Close quote. Peter also states they were whipped for trying to tell that they were free men. Lydia Smith was another slave that talked about being forcibly taken to Patty's house in 1825. She was chained for five months before she was taken back into the Deep South. A 1907 article recorded a self-described Amazonian Paul Bunyan, who personally tied some of Patty's victims, stating that Patty was, quote, robust, had a wealth of black hair, and her face, while showing the effects of her evil passions and dispositions, was more or less good to look upon, close quote. So I'm going to kind of give a quick little history lesson so we can put this into perspective. Cool. So even though it was illegal now to kidnap and sell African Americans to slavery, a lot of whites at this time, even in the North, still had the belief that all African Americans should be slaves. So the history is Lincoln wasn't president until 1860, the Civil War wasn't until 1861, and so that Emancipation Proclamation wasn't until 1863. So with all this, the law wasn't heavily prosecuted when it was broken. And African Americans were still not allowed to testify against whites in courts. So if you were an African American and you were kidnapped, it was hard to regain your freedom. Now, I love this movie called 12 Years a Slave, which is, of course, based off the book by Solomon Northrup. And Solomon Northrup was born an African-American in 1808 when that first law came into place, and he was kidnapped in 1841, and he wasn't freed until 12 long years later. So, with all this in mind, you know, it's 1820s. Patty and her gang were not the only slave traders in the region. Of course widely not. popular. Oh, <laughs> I believe that. Yeah. I could... I can just see it now yeah. that she's not the only... Yeah, she's... Just wait, though. She gets... Savage. She gets bad. The gang was once indicted in May of 1822 when Joe was sentenced to the pillory in 39 Lashes. So the pillory? I had to look that up. I'm like, what the heck? It's those yeah. wood things where you put your hands through in your head. Oh, okay, and they yeah. Close it. yeah. Yeah, I have a picture of it. Okay, cool. I was like, yeah, that's what it is. And then 39 Lashes. Although Patty and the rest of the gang were never prosecuted for what they were doing at that point. That is until Cyrus James in 1829. Cyrus was one of Patty's slaves she raised since she bought him when he was seven. Patty had taught Cyrus how to capture his own people for her. He was caught in Delaware trying to kidnap other African Americans and he told stories of Patty and the Johnson family capturing and murdering many people. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <clears throat> so she had kidnapped this little boy at seven. She and had bought him. Okay. She bought him from somebody. Mm-hmm. And then trained him and taught him how to kidnap. How to kidnap. His own people. His own. And, like, made him do that. Of course. Like, cause... freaking psycho. Dang. <sighs> and so then... Cyrus also confessed that Patty had killed the baby of a slave that Patty had owned. 
He states that he saw Patty inflict a mortal wound on the child, then saw her carry the child out in her apron, and although the baby was not yet dead when she took him out, the child never returned with Patty. Authorities then followed Cyrus to the property where he led them to where bodies were buried, including a white slave trader. So a disposition at the time states, much excitement now prevails in this county in consequence of the discovery of the bodies of several persons upon the premises of the celebrated Patty Cannon, close quote. Joe Johnson was suspected to skip town and move to Alabama and the rest of the gang dissipated too, but I don't know where they went. And then Patty was placed in Georgetown jail in Delaware with Cyrus and a man named Butler who was also in the gang. Patty was indicted on four counts of murder by a jury of 24 white males. The counts are as follows. An adult male, the slave trader, on October 1st of 1820. An infant female and a male child on April 26th of 1822. And an African-American boy on June 1st of 1824. And these were all signed by Attorney General James Rogers. So at the time, Patty was anywhere from 60 to 70, and then she chose to kill herself on May 11th of 1829 um, from suspected poisoning. She was then buried outside the Sussex County Courthouse till her bones were moved, and reportedly a man named Charles I. Joseph took her skull and hung it on a nail in his barn. Later, he gave the skull to a relative, Alfred Joseph, who then donated it to the Dover Public Library in a box of red satin. For years, her school was brought out during Halloween in Delaware as a display until laws were finally placed to forbid displaying human remains. Because, you know. Right. I mean, it's like the Disneyland thing. There's only one human skull in the whole ride of pirates um. now. <laughs> Not all of the bones. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> so, I'm sorry if I say this name wrong, but it's weird. Margie Sire, the Dover Public Library director contacted the Smithsonian Institute in 2010 and gave it to Douglas W. Owsley, who is the division head of physical anthropology at the National Museum of Natural History. So I have a picture of this on the blog of him with the skull in red satin. That's kind of cool. Cool. He has been able to prove that the skull does belong to a female who died around the age of 70 during the 1820s but cannot 100% confirm the skull belonged to Patty since her only daughter had no children and there are no physical f and there are no physical photos of her because of a fire at the courthouse many years ago. And so the skull's at the Smithsonian until further notice and she's a freak. Wowza. All right, that was some nice history. You're welcome. That's awesome though. Like I thought we should have one that's like super old but still creepy. Yeah. And <laughs> It is nice. It's cool, like, that they used to bring out her school mm -hmm. during Halloween time. Like, how... That would be so dope if I could see a real school. I know, right? That would be so cool. I mean, go to Disneyland and ride the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. I mean, yeah. That's been, like, 20 years since I've been there. Let's go. <laughs> Let's pretend we live in California and go. Okay. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just pretend Lagoon's Disneyland. But they don't have a real school. We don't know that. Mm. True. Anyways, so if you want to read any of our sources for yourself or find the pictures we talk about, you can go ahead and find our notes on this episode and all episodes on TwistedSistersCrime.com. That is where you can also find our social links to our Facebook and Instagram. 
Shirts are ordered and on the way, but you can still snag a water bottle for all of your hydration needs for only $8. So thank you for all your support and listening ears, and until next week, stay smart, stay safe, and stay twisted.